Good morning, Crosswalk, and happy Easter. So good to be with you on this special weekend. I want to add my welcome to those that might be visiting for the first time. So glad you're here with us, and we truly hope you feel safe, that you belong, and that more than anything else this morning, you catch a fresh and new vision of Jesus. We've all done crazy things for love over the course of our lives, haven't we? Things that other people thought were at best flat out stupid, at worst, dangerous and ridiculous. In high school, I once climbed on top of a moving car for love. That was stupid, dangerous, and ridiculous all in one. In college, I once flew to Texas to have a second date with a girl I had only met once before on a blind date three months earlier. That was crazy, but she ended up becoming my wife, so take that, crazy. When my daughter turned three, I paid a college student to show up at our birthday party dressed as Cinderella. When my son was 17, I helped him stalk a YouTuber he wanted to meet, and we didn't even get arrested. Met him, had a great time. We do crazy things for love. I'm sure the angels told the Godhead that what they had planned to do to save the human race was crazy. Take on human flesh, live in their mess, become sin to save humanity. Are you kidding? Allow the rebellious, sin-filled, self-centered creation to nail you to a cross separating the Son from the Father and the Spirit and entering the grave. They had never heard of something more insane or more beautiful. To save the human race, the Trinity was going to risk everything because of love. For the last six weeks, we've been going through the book of John, who refers to himself in the book as the one whom Jesus loved. John had once been known as a son of thunder, as impulsive, as short-tempered, and as a man whose only talent was to snag fish out of the sea. But after three years with this man, Jesus, John knew, John took on a new title that was the only one he cared about. The son of thunder became the beloved. And after almost 50 years since he last saw the man who changed his life, he sat down to write his story of all that had taken place. To John, it wasn't just another story. It was truth, life, hope incarnate. And it was the most important thing that had ever happened in the world. As he thought back over everything, as he wrestled with how to begin, his mind drifted back to the miracles, the people, the encounters, the relationships, and the Savior he loved so much. As the tip of his feathered pen hit the papyrus, two major themes stuck out in his mind. He writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light and dark, life and death. John begins here because here is where we all begin. Conceived in darkness, born into light. And the moments in our lives that tend to mark us and shape us and change us are found within these metaphors. When I think of the moments of life that have shaped my life, I think of first kisses and belly laughs and treasured moments with friends. I think of graduations and wedding days, the birth of my children, and yes, I think of my own baptism and journey with Christ. And when I think of the darkness, those moments have marked me as well. My parents' divorce, the death of my grandmother and my dad, breakups, anxiety, depression. I think of journeying with people as a chaplain and pastor through the worst moments of life. I think of political fights, moral failings, terminal diagnoses, 
terrorism, deceit, violence, and rage, light and dark, life and death. These metaphors and synonyms are found throughout the story of the human race. The story, as told in the scriptures, begin with an earth that was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. But in an instant, with four words, God changed everything. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Creation was good, beautiful, perfect. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. But God gave his children an incredible, albeit risky, gift. A gift born out of love in order to preserve the purity of it. In order for his creation to genuinely return his love and affection, he gave them the gift of free will. A gift that would allow them to choose him, but would also allow them to choose not him. It was the only way to keep love from being forced or coerced. All was well in that garden until the antagonist of this story appears in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, otherwise known as the devil, comes to the garden to deceive Adam and Eve, calling into question the goodness of God as he himself had done before them. His tricks work. Adam and Eve break their trust with the father, questioning his love, his character, and by doing so, they thrust God's perfect creation back into the darkness. In fact, sin is often the undoing of God's creative work, with death itself being creation's greatest foe. And for thousands of years, death reigned. For thousands of years, people were trapped in darkness, hopelessness, loneliness, pain. The darkness was a powerful foe. That is until the day planned since even before the world was created. The day that because of love, God set in motion the plan to destroy the reign of death and darkness in his creation. And it is in our present darkness that the light of the Easter story shines forth. It is in the midst of our bleak circumstances, when it seems like our world is falling apart at the seams, that the hope and triumph of Easter breaks through to our hearts, reminding us that the story we see with our eyes is not all that there is. For just over 2,000 years ago, the light of the world left the comforts of heaven to confront the greatest enemy he and we have ever faced. The Easter story is about the ultimate conflict when the powers of life and light came face to face with the powers of death and darkness. At just the right time, while we were still powerless over our sin and death, the light of the world entered into our darkness. From the comforts of heaven, the Son of God came down to our dark home. He came not only to show us who the Father really is, he came to dethrone the power and reign of sin and darkness. The mission to come to earth and battle the darkness was the most dangerous mission ever conceived or accepted. Should Jesus fail, the universe would be given over to the prince of darkness, but should he win, he would break the power of evil and reclaim his children. From the, moment of Je- the, from the moment Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, the devil was after him. Every moment of his life, the devil was on attack because everything was at stake. Yet Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. 27 years go by and the conflict goes to the next level. Jesus begins his public ministry and the devil is right there. The devil sought to trick Jesus into revealing his power. Three times the devil taunted Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the son of God, jump off this rock. Then the devil even promises to give Jesus authority over all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and worship him. But Jesus knew who the devil really was, what the devil really wanted, and he saw through the lies. 
He rejects the devil's advances, even though he knows that with every step he takes on the plan of salvation, he is marching to his own demise. Throughout Jesus's ministry, he continued to encounter the darkness, demon possessions, attacks and judgments from the religious leaders, and even several attempts to take his life. At every step, Jesus was victorious. Then we enter into some of the final scenes leading up to the ultimate conflict. Jesus shows his power over death with the raising of Lazarus, which stirs the frenzy of the religious leaders who see him as their greatest threat to the life they wanted. Then he comes into Jerusalem riding a donkey with the people, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. From there, Jesus heads to the temple and overturns the tables that are creating barriers between God and his children. Then on Thursday night of the Passion Week, the gloves come off. The devil is ready and the real battle begins. This battle begins in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. As Frank Viola and Leonard Sweet write in in Gethsemane, he who was absolute righteousness became absolute sin. But beyond all that, he faced what the Bible calls the last enemy of God's greatest foe, death, the child of sin, death, the antithesis of God, death the arch enemy of God. In the garden, the greatest two powers of the universe squared off, death versus divine life. The power of darkness began throwing everything it had at Jesus that night. The lies of the devil crept into Jesus's thoughts. What if I'm not strong enough? What if I fail and the whole human race is lost? What if the darkness is more than I can bear? As Jesus wrestled with the powers of darkness, the sin he bore began to separate him from the Father in a way he'd never experienced. We're told by 19th century author Ellen White that Jesus clung to the ground of the garden where he lay that night as if to prevent being drawn even farther away from God. She goes on to explain the gulf Jesus felt between himself and the divine was so broad, so black, so deep that his spirit shuddered before it. Christ's soul was filled with dread of separation from God. Satan told him that if he became the surety for a sinful world, the separation would be eternal. Jesus trembled at the thought of being shut out from the Father forever. In the garden, he felt that by becoming sin, he could never again be worthy to step back into the presence of God, never again enjoy that relationship. To a smaller degree, we fight that feeling as well, don't we? In our own struggle with sin, we also feel unworthy to come before God. Too often we let shame tell us that God wants nothing to do with us, and so we hide. Shame... Like its father, the devil lies to us. We have to remember the words of the apostle. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But the devil continues to focus focus his full force on the Son of God. I'm sure he reminded Jesus that his own disciples, his closest companions, would all forsake him that night. I'm sure he showed Jesus the vision of Judas betraying him, of Peter denying him, of his own creation slapping him in the face, beating him to a pulp, and nailing him to a cross. And I'm sure the devil told him repeatedly that his efforts wouldn't save a single soul. That's what the devil does best. He lies. He gives us half-truths. He tries to convince us that things will never change. We will always fail. We'll never be good enough. Jesus, being bombarded by the powers of darkness, was so full of anguish, anxiety, depression, and loneliness that his sweat became like drops of blood. But through all the grief, the pain, and the fear... Jesus knows what he came to do. He knows he must suffer and endure this weight, for he is the only one who can do it. He knows that there is no other way to overthrow sin, death, and darkness. 
He must become the sacrifice. He must save his children. He must because that is what love does. And love is who God is. And love makes people do crazy things. So with the drops of blood and the tears streaming down his face, Jesus prays one last prayer. My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus has decided to save God's children no matter the cost to himself. Oh, what love, what wondrous love. The story goes on. Jesus is arrested and tried with the devil in full control. Jesus even said during his trial, this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. Soon, Jesus is beaten, flogged, and his body ripped apart. His physical form begins to reflect his inner struggle. Though he was enduring the worst form of torture and death ever invented, the physical suffering paled in comparison to what was going on inside of him. Then, like a thief, the creator of the world hung on a cross. We're told that darkness fell across the whole land in Mark 15 because the light from the sun was gone, Luke 23. The conflict was spilling out into the whole of creation. Passerbys hurled insults at Jesus, and in those insults, you could hear the devil's voice. If you are the son of God, save yourself and come down for the cross. He saved others, but he can't save himself. But just when death and darkness seem to rule the day, the story takes a surprising turn, one that so many of us miss. For on that cross, with the darkness so thick, our Savior does something incredibly unexpected. In the height of the biggest battle of all time, when the enemy had the upper hand, Jesus sings a song. What? You say? A song? I don't remember reading that part of the story. Oh, but it's there, not just any song. The gospel writers tell us that just that before Jesus died, while hanging on that cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Shortly after this, he said, I am thirsty. And with his final breath, he pronounced, It is finished. Most have thought that Jesus' words on the cross were said in defeat and anguish, the words of a man torn apart. And though I'm sure that's partly true, it's not the whole story, for these words come from Psalm 22. And for a Jew, the Psalms were songbooks, full of prayers that a Jew would rarely just quote. Instead, especially for a rabbi like Jesus, the Psalms were sung. And they would rarely sing just a portion of the song in Psalm. Instead, they'd sing them all the way through. So what does this mean for Jesus on the cross? It means they pushed himself up on that nail that went through his feet so he could begin the song, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He continued with the words, I am thirsty, or as the psalm says, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And the psalm goes on to say, They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves. The first part of the psalm represents well the struggle of the cross, but then, just when you think the psalm will end in defeat, it takes a turn and says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him, for he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. All who seek the Lord will praise him. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. They will hear about everything he has done. And with that, the song ends. But do you know another way to translate those last three words, he has done? He has done can also be translated, it is finished. 
on that cross, while darkness reigned and death was about to claim the creator of life, the Savior of the world sang a song of victory. And when he breathed his last, the earth shook, and the light from within him burst out across the land. Jesus died, and for a moment it seemed as if death had won. The hopes of all those who followed him seemed lost, and that Sabbath was the darkest day in earth's history. But the story wasn't over yet. For the night is always darkest just before the dawn, and so it was on that Sunday morning. In the darkness of the tomb, a light burst forth from within that grave-clothed body, and the Son of God breathed again. With his breath, death was arrested. With his breath, darkness lost its power over us. With his breath, the devil lost. And with his breath taken in that tomb and then shared with us, hope is restored and our future is secure. Today we live in the now and the not yet. Death is defeated, yes, but it is not gone. Not yet. There is still pain and darkness, grief and hurt, but their days are numbered. For the day is coming when sin and death and darkness will meet their ultimate fate. And when that day comes, do you know how much power is needed to bind up those powers that have plagued us since the Garden of Eden? Revelation 21 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, and bound him. And a few verses later, the devil and death and the grave are done away with forever, all with just one angel. Then will come the words that God has longed to say, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. This is the hymn of heaven. And this new city we will live in, listen to how John describes it. The city of God has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. And just to reiterate it one more time, John goes on to say in Revelation 22, And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. No more night. The darkness will be gone forever. No more cancer, no more violence, no more selfishness, no more children's hospitals, no more starving people, no more homelessness, no more debt or suicide, no more depression or anxiety, no more fear. God will shine and reign forevermore. This is what God has always wanted, what he fought for, bled for, died for. He died for you. This is how much he loves you. Do you believe it? Do you believe God loves you? Will you receive his love? If the answer is yes, then go and share that love with the world he died to save. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it.